Good to be with you. I know uh, the elders of Woodside and Wallenstein uh, want to continue to forge friendship. Uh, we did that this past spring with uh, a joint meeting and pizza, of course, had to have pizza, uh, which was uh, great fellowship and just a great encouragement for us uh, all to realize that we have friends and allies. And I think in this time, in our culture, in our country, in our world, we need to stand together with other believers who want to uphold God's Word and, and the, the good news of Jesus. So uh, we look forward to doing that. We uh, were delighted to have uh, your gifted teaching pastor, Dan, with us, I think, in June and appreciated his message. We've had Darcy do it, and we've even had Chris. Uh, so is he, where'd he go? He's gone. All right, I'm just kidding. We love Chris. I had to check back, but it was in 2019 when the Raptors won the NBA championship and 1.5 million people gathered in downtown Toronto. Were you there? Anyone there? Show me your hand. I want to see it. Nobody? How many would have been there if it was the Leafs? <laughs> yeah, dream on. Never going to happen. I heard, actually, that three years earlier, when the Chicago Cubs won the World Series after a 108-year drought, that five million people flooded the downtown of Chicago to celebrate. Now, if you're a Raptors fan, or if you're a Chicago Cubs fan, if, or if you're a Leafs fan, and if you live this close, close as we do to Toronto, I mean, it just makes sense for you to go and celebrate such a significant event. And what I want us to see this morning as we begin reading in Psalm 113 is that this is exactly what we're being called to. We're being called out. We're being invited out into a moment of praise, not for a sports team, but not surprisingly, for the Lord Himself. Do you see it there? in verse 1. In fact, this psalm is bookended with the Hebrew phrase, hallelujah, which we translate, praise the Lord. It begins, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, you His servants. Praise the name of the Lord. In your English Bible, it might show you there that uh, the word Lord is all capitalized, capital L-O-R-D, which tells us that in Hebrew, this is actually the name of God, which we believe, scholars believe, was likely Yahweh. But the Hebrew scribes were so careful and so reverential towards that name that they wouldn't write the whole name, and so to this day, we don't know exactly how to spell God's name, one of the reasons why in English they translate it Lord. But here, God is being named. This is Yahweh, praise Yahweh. In fact, it goes on to say at the end of verse 1 that we should praise the name of Yahweh. Now, think back to the time when this was written, when uh, the, the Hebrew writer here knew that as a Jewish person, there was one God that he or she should worship, and that, of course, was Yahweh. The other nations had their own gods, most of whom had names. When the people of Israel were taken into captivity, you might remember that Daniel and his Jewish friends were actually renamed after the gods of Babylon. The Philistines had their god. The Ark of the Covenant was stolen in battle and taken into the, uh, the temple of the god Dagon. And you remember, if you've read the Old Testament, the, the god Baal and the Ashtoreth and all of these different gods who had names. But here we're told there's one god who should be praised, 
and we should praise his name. Let's get his name right. Let's get the God right. It's not the God of the nations. It's the God of Israel. It's the God of creation. So we're being called out in this psalm to do what? To praise the Lord, specifically to praise the God of the Bible, the God of Israel, the God of creation, who is Yahweh. Now, who is supposed to do this? Who's being called out to praise God in this way? We see it in verse 1, the servants of the Lord. You, His servants, are the ones who should praise the Lord. Now, who is that? Now, for followers of Jesus, we should be like the Apostle Paul who said, I'm actually a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see yourself as a servant of God? Actually, if you're human, you were meant to be a servant of God. Because if you go back and read in Genesis 1 and 2, you find that God makes creation and then He makes humanity and then He invites humanity to join Him in His work to be the caretakers of the world that He made to be the ones who fill the earth and subdue it or harness it. That's our job. We're to serve God. We're to serve the Creator in that way, uh, that He put us over His creation to be the managers of it. We are. To be human is to be God's servant. And so we're the ones who are being called out here to praise God. Now, when? When are we supposed to do this? Well, we get that answer too. In verse 2, let the name of the Lord be praised. See it there? Both now and forevermore. What's he saying? We got to start right now. We're not going to delay. We're going to start right now. And in fact, we're never going to stop praising God. It just needs to go on and on for all eternity. Aren't we going to get bored? No. We are going to praise God forever. Is he really worthy of that? Yes. We will never, it will never grow old to praise God. We will never run out of things to say in praising God. Let's start now and let's carry on for all eternity. This is a big deal, this thing that we're being invited into. Now, where? Where is this kind of praise supposed to happen? Just in Toronto? Just in Chicago? Just at Woodside? No, it tells us in verse 3, from the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, the name of the Lord is to be praised. Where does the sun rise and where does it set? Well, that's globally, and you scientists who know about the, you know, the darkness in the Arctic and Antarctic, just never mind that for a moment. The point here is everywhere, everywhere globally, God is to be praised. In fact, this is actually the message of the whole Bible. God created the world, a world that cries out, glorifying Him, he creates humanity to be His servants, to be the managers of His world, to be in His image, to live in relationship with Him. Of course, sin has ruined all that. But the story of the Bible and the story of history is God inviting His people, inviting humanity back into this opportunity to live under His banner of glory and beauty and safety. So there is a time coming when in this world every voice every person will bring glory to God. There will be a time in this world where every human being who walks on this earth will know the name Yahweh, and they will know the name Jesus, and they will cry out in praise, that day is coming. Now, actually, if you're a follower of Jesus, these are our marching orders. This is what we are called to. 
not only to be the ones who shout the name of Yahweh and Jesus and praise His name, but to be making Him known throughout the earth so that everyone in this world will know the name of Jesus and will praise His name. Sadly, that is not true in our world today, is it? That there are still billions of people in our world who have never heard the name Jesus. And that needs to grieve us, and that needs to move us. What can we do? What can we give? Can I go to be the person who brings the name of Jesus to some of the millions of people in the world who've yet to hear about him? So we are being called summoned into this moment of praise that's supposed to uh, encompass the whole world. Every human being in the world should praise God. It should start now. It should continue forever. And everywhere in this world where people set their feet, God should be praised. So, the obvious question should be, what's the big deal? Why? Why should we praise God in this way? Why are you summoning us uh, to this high calling of praising God? Okay, he anticipates the question as he writes his song, and verse 2 gives us the answer, starting in verse 4. He says, the Lord is exalted over all the nations. His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high. And now we're reading words which are probably failing to raise our minds and our hearts to the heights that we really need to go. The Lord is exalted over all the nations. So, what does that mean? Well, let's begin by thinking about the wealth of all the nations. So, let me show you a picture here just to help us. And this is a picture of one trillion dollars. So, the squares that you're seeing there are pallets, and they are stacked four to five feet high with $100 bills, American, of course. Each pallet contains $100 million. And if you want to know what a trillion dollars, I think that's the Canadian debt now, isn't it? A trillion dollars or something? That's what it looks like. Now, if you try to look up global wealth, how much wealth is in the entire world. You'll get different numbers. Some people would say there are, uh, there are 500 combined trillion dollars, 500 of these, this picture that you see, stack them up 500 high, and that's how much wealth. Other people would say, well, no, actually, if you add all the real estate and all the technology and all, all of the stuff in the world, you actually end up in the quadrillions, one or two quadrillion dollars and God is exalted over all the nations. What if the nations of the world came together and put all our money together and tried to somehow buy off God? Here, God will give you all this. You do what we say, and God would scoff. Now, here's a picture that represents all the gold that's ever been mined in the world in all of history. And I know this, so you see, it's, it's actually sitting in an Olympic-sized swimming pool, and there's a tractor trailer and a house. That's all the gold that's ever been mined in all of human history. Anyone here, would, would you like to have that? Where would you put it? You need a big garage. 
impressive? Well, actually, God's Word says that that eternal city that we're going to dwell in if we're His people is made of pure gold. Remember the city, if you've ever read about it, it's 2,200 kilometers wide. It's 2,200 kilometers long. It's 2,200 kilometers high, and it's made of pure gold. Foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. Twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold. Do you realize how little that is compared to what we're going to see someday? Eh, not a big deal. God is exalted over all the nations. Take the great cities of the world, Dubai and Singapore and Tokyo, and take all of the real estate and all of the skyscrapers and all of the towers and everything that man has ever made, and it would be like the Tower of Babel of old where God would have to come down to have a look. Take all the military might in all the world, 30 million strong active military personnel across the world today, all of the tanks, all of the, all of the might, all of the missiles and bombs, and line it up against God. And actually, we read in the end times, in the book of Revelation, that this is, in, in a sense, what's going to happen at the end of time, the nations of the world rising up against God, yet God's Word tells us that when that happened, when, when the kings of the earth rise up against the Lord and against his anointed, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Or as, that, as it says in Isaiah, surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. All the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. The Lord is exalted over the nations. But that's not all, because it tells us here in verse 4 that His glory, or in other words, His beauty, His, his worth, His might is above, or you could say higher than the heavens. So I brought some pictures. Have you read about the new James Webb space telescope that went out there? We had the Hubble for at least two decades, I think, and it was time to build a bigger, better one one that could go farther into space and see deeper into space, and they've just started this year sending back pictures like this. Now, what is this? They call this the cosmic cliffs. This is uh, what they call a nebula, which is a mixture of gas and dust, and it's just sheer beauty. This has been hiding in outer space, unknown to humanity until 2022, and now we've seen it. This is what God has made, and He hid it out there, and He knew we wouldn't find it till now, and maybe a hundred years from now, we're going to be finding more, but God is exalted above. Here's another nebula, mixture of gas and dust, this one called, let me get it right, the Southern Ring. This one, the Cartwheel Galaxy. This is not a cloud of dust and gas like a nebula. This is a galaxy which is made up of millions and millions, possibly billions of stars. So what you're looking at there is not a single star that's exploding. It's actually a galaxy full of millions of stars like our sun. And this is new. And we've just discovered this through the James Webb Telescope. 
How about the size of some of these stars? This picture represents one of the largest known stars that we're aware of on the left. And then on the right, you'll see these rings. In the center of those rings is a little dot, and that's our sun. And that's how small it is in comparison to some of the largest stars that we know of in the universe. And those rings represent our solar system and the complete orbit of the distant planets in our solar system. And do you realize that there are stars that are so large in our, our universe that our whole, you could cut them in half, try that, put our whole solar system inside, put the top back on, it would fit. That's how massive some of these stars are. So let's take a little trip. Do you mind? Take a little trip in the, in the universe here. We'll start with the moon, 380,000 kilometers from the Earth. And we're going to hop in your pickup truck, which I know there must be a few out there here at Woodside. And we're going to drive 100 kilometers an hour, day and night, no washroom breaks. And we're going to drive to the moon. It will take us 158 days to get there, driving 100 kilometers an hour nonstop. That's a trip. Oh, well, we get that over with. Let's go to the sun. The sun is 150 million kilometers from the earth. So same pickup truck, same speed, drive day and night, no washroom breaks, not going through the drive through at McDonald's, and it will take us 170 years to drive to our sun. So let's try the speed of light. My car can go the speed of light, which is 300,000 kilometers per second. So if you could travel at that speed, 300,000 kilometers per second, you could get to our moon in just over a second. But it would take you eight minutes to get to our sun. Now, this is our solar system. This is the Milky Way solar. This is our home. This is where our solar system is. And you can't obviously see it. You can't even see our sun here. This is our solar system, which is made up of millions and millions and millions of stars. So now that we've been to the moon and the sun, let's take a trip across our solar system at the speed of light, 300,000 kilometers per second, and it will take you, let me get this right, One hundred thousand years. One hundred thousand years traveling the speed of light just to traverse our solar system. Unbelievable. God is so massive. And we, I mean, it's so cool that He put these things out there and He knew we'd discover them little by little and we start to see new things and we start to think of the magnitude and the scope of the universe and realize how did this all come to be? And if you believe that the God, there is a God who's behind it, you must know that He is infinite. That a God who could make this, that we can't even find the edge of the universe, and the God who made it is bigger, and that's what the text is saying to us here, that the Lord is exalted over all the nations and His glory above the heavens. Take all the beauty of the universe and all the magnitude of it, and God's glory, His beauty, His worth is higher. But then we consider this. I think Darcy taught on this a week or two ago, Psalm 8, I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers. And we need to be deeply humbled to consider our great God. Do you ever step on a Lego? 
I mean, that's what my, my kids grew up. I, I did, too. I played with Lego, you know, these little blocks and make some things with my fingers, and wow, that, look at that. And God has made the universe with his fingers. Or read Isaiah again, lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Billions and trillions of stars, and God's got a name for all of them. Probably called one Claude. Because of his great power and mighty strength. This is amazing. We could actually stop here. And everything we've read so far confirms what the first three verses were telling us. Stop the press. Stop everything you're doing. We need to start right now and praise God and never stop for all eternity. But the psalm isn't, the psalm's not over. Because you read past verse 5, which says, who's like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high, and we come to these words, who stoops down to look on the heavens. Now, this does two things. It reminds us again of the magnitude, the sheer size of the God who made the universe that we cannot find the edge of, but when he decides he wants a closer look at the Southern Ring Nebula, when he wants a closer look at the Milky Way galaxy. He's got to get down on his hands and knees. He's got to get out the microscope. He's got to get down low to see that, and that's because he is so high. But then we read on, because it tells us not just that he has to stoop down, but that he does. He does stoop down to look on the heavens and the earth. You remember that picture I showed you with a huge star on the left and then the rings of our solar system, a tiny dot of our sun? So if you could stand back and look at our solar system and see the whole thing, you wouldn't see the earth. You, wouldn't even, you couldn't see it. Step back and look at the whole universe and ask yourself, how significant is this globe that we live on? And it's nothing. It is less than a speck of dust. But the reason we are called to praise God isn't just that he made all of this and that he's bigger than all of this, but that he looks upon all of this, yes, even on the earth. He stoops to look. This is the story of the Bible. God creating, and then when Adam and Eve sinned, there's God in the garden, walking in the garden, talking to Adam and Eve. And when the people built the Tower of Babel in defiance, in a sense, against God, there was God coming down to see the tower. And when the earth was filled with violence and corruption, there was God coming down and meeting with Noah. And all the way through history, God has come down to meet with Noah and Abraham and David and, and maybe with you because this is the kind of God that we have. Not only is he so high and so lofty and so big and majestic, he's worthy of our praise just for that, but he's worthy of our praise because he stoops down and looks on the earth. It gets better. Because verse 7 continues this theme of the stoop, the humbling of God, stooping down not just to look on the heavens, that's a stretch, but to find his gaze fixed on this speck of dust we call earth. More than that, 
He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes, with the princes of his people. He settles the childless woman in her home as a happy mother of children. And no wonder it says again, praise the Lord. Do you know what this means? It means that this God who's so big, so majestic, so glorious, has to stoop down to see the universe, condescends, in other words, humbles himself, and out of mercy and grace, comes all the way down to find people like you and me. Look, look first at verse 9. The childless woman. I don't know how that strikes you as you read that. Maybe there's someone here or you know someone who struggled with infertility and the pain of that. In Bible times, it was a horrific predicament because it wasn't just as a woman the, the loss of the ability to have a child, but it was the shame because everyone else in your culture looked down on you and said, well, this is God's judgment on you. You don't deserve to have a child. Your social security was completely tied, not just to getting married, that was the first thing, but to having children because likely your husband is a lot older of you and he's not going to live to be 60, and your social security for the rest of your life is tied to having children. And if you are a barren woman, well, the Bible tells us stories of people, a woman who was barren, the mother of Samuel, and the grief, even though she had a husband who loved her and accepted her, but in many cases, to be a barren woman was, would to be cast aside. I, I tend to wonder if the woman that Jesus met at the well, and in conversation it comes out that she's been married five different times, and we tend to think, oh, what a sinful woman she must have been. But I wonder if she was simply a barren woman who'd been cast aside by five husbands, because in that culture, that's the way you looked at barrenness. And what does this mean? It means that God doesn't just see our world, but he sees individual pain and suffering. And he doesn't just see it and know it, but he does something about it. You see what he's doing here? He comes and takes hold of that woman who's been rejected by uh, her, her husband, who's been left childless, who is looked down upon probably even by her own family as a sinful woman. God is judging you, and God finds that woman, picks her up, gives her a home, gives her a family. You know what, you know what the family is? It's God's family. You, you come and sit at my table. You come and be my child. You come and dine with my children. But we saw it even before in verse 7 where we read that God raises the poor from the dust. What? He, he lifts the needy from the ash heap? What is this? The ash heap was the city dump. Outside of the, the walls of the city, most cities in those days had walls. Well, the dump, the garbage, the refuse, the human excrement, the, the dead animals would get tossed out into that place. And like it often does in slums around the world today, and I've seen in Nairobi and in Haiti where often there's piles of garbage that just someone sets them on fire and they just kind of perpetually burn. And, and there are places in the world where people live 
in places just like that because they have no other home, they have no other means of income, and they have no other place to find food, and so they rummage through the city dump, try to find something. And do you see what this is saying here about God? God doesn't just stoop down and see our speck of dust called the world. God stoops down and sees the needy. He sees individuals who are desperate. Oh, and then he sends someone, he sends someone else to go and help them out, right? Well, that's not what this text says. It says that he lifts the needy. I mean, how filthy are these people who live in these places and who live and sleep and work among the garbage? They're, they're covered in filth, but God is the one who reaches down and picks them up and touches them. Jesus showed us exactly the heart of God when he came to earth as God in the flesh. When he met a man who was diseased with leprosy, a common and infectious disease, who approached Jesus and said, I know if you're willing, you can make me clean. And the response of Jesus was to actually, when everyone else likely was running away and crying out unclean and telling him to, to get away, Jesus moved to him and touched him. It's a picture of the kindness of God reaching out to the needy, lifting them from the ash heap. Most of us know nothing of what we see on the screen here. Maybe you don't realize, but if you've been born in North America, chances are you have been among the wealthiest in all the world. The top percentile of wealth is represented right here in this room. You don't have to be a millionaire, but if you have a home and you have a vehicle and you've got a good job, you are in the top percentile in the whole world. Most of the world doesn't know what it's like to have what we have. We are the wealthy ones. We gotta stop for a minute and realize that this picture's us, though. Not economically in poverty, but spiritually, covered in the mess of our sin and brokenness that God saw us and acted upon our need and in His grace and mercy came down to the ash heap to rescue us. That's just a simple metaphor of what happened when Jesus, God in the flesh, came to the world and lived among us and rubbed shoulders with sinners and felt the sting of criticism and rejection and ultimately was placed on a cross of execution. This was God experiencing the very worst that our world could offer so that he could lift the needy from the ash heap. Praise the Lord. Where would we be if not for a God like this? No wonder the songwriter here is saying, we need you. Stop everything you're doing. We've got to praise the Lord. We've got to start now. We've got to continue forever. We need everybody in on this. But is it true of us? I've been so convicted by this passage this week in my own life as I deal with some health issues, as I'm sure many of you are, as we struggle as parents to figure out what am I supposed to do with my kids and how do I raise these kids, and, or we have financial challenges or marital struggles, or maybe you are one of those uh, 
women that struggles with infertility. Maybe you've been part of a marriage where you've been rejected and abandoned. We need this message, actually. This is what we need to lift our gaze, to realize that there is a God who is so big and so majestic. This itself, this praise is so much the answer to so many of our struggles, whether it's depression or anxiety or we're struggling with the sin of pornography or whatever it might be. What we need to do is lift our gaze, lift our gaze from the garbage and things that are all around us and see a God who is big and transcendent and majestic and know that he's also a God who sees you in your need and who's ready and willing to act upon it. We need to be people who praise God. In fact, I would say that this is, in essence, if we wanted to boil down the Christian life, boil down what it means to be a follower of Jesus, one of the people of God, what does that look like? You can boil it down to this, to these words that we've heard. Praise the Lord. That's what we need to do. How, how do I raise my kids to follow Jesus? Well, do this. Praise the Lord in front of your children. Tell them how great God is. You're struggling with depression. You're struggling with sin. What, what do you need to do? You need to praise. It's like the Old Testament stories when the enemies came against Israel. Do you remember that one story? Um, in Chronicles, I think it is. And this huge army is coming against Israel. God says, don't worry. I'm going to fight for you. And the people actually say to the king, hey, can we send the singers out front? We've got a really great military strategy. Let's send the choir out front of the army to sing. That's actually the way we need to live our lives. When we lead with praise of God, when that uh, defines us, when that is our heart moment by moment, it lifts us up out of sin and struggle, depression and anxiety, because our eyes are fixed on a God who's so much bigger. This is the message of the Bible. And all through Scripture, we see this again and again. This is what it looks like to be a follower of God. David wrote this, I will praise you, Lord, notice what he says, among the nations. He understood in his close walk with God that it wasn't just Israel who needed to praise God and know how great God was. It was the whole world. Same for us today. Then he could write, give praise to the Lord, proclaim his name, make known among the nations what he has done. Psalm 145, one generation commends, here's the parenting thing, one generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. When Jesus healed the man who was full of demons and he cast those demons out of him and the man said to Jesus, I want to follow you. And Jesus said, no, here's what I want you to do. Return home and tell how much God has done for you. You realize this is what your coworkers need. And we, we can get all twisted up about evangelism and what does it mean to be a witness and how, you know, which scriptures should I memorize and how do I answer certain questions. You know what? It comes down to this. This is what your coworkers need. They need to hear you tell them how good God has been to you. That's what they need. And we can all do that. That's not complicated. Tell how much God has done for you. When Jesus, in Acts chapter 1, was some of his final words to his disciples, he said, you'll be my witnesses. Don't you just love that? This, this is what it means 
to be an evangelist, to share the good news. We're just being a witness of what we've seen and heard about God and what He's done in our lives. When the apostles were confronted and said, you can't preach this gospel anymore, this is exactly how they answered the charge. They said, we can't help it. We can't help but speak about what we have seen and heard. And Peter said, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. John understood it. He said, we proclaim to you, his reader in 1 John, what we've seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. And it's all a fulfillment of this promise way back in the Old Testament book of Habakkuk, which says, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. That is what is coming. And it starts right here, right now, it starts with us. Do you realize how powerful your praise is even in the context of the church? I know at Wallenstein we've come out of COVID and, you know, finally um, didn't have to wear masks and kind of feel like we can finally encourage people to sing. And it's taken a while, but finally we can, we can actually hear people singing. Do you realize that when we gather in the church, Scripture tells us in Colossians and Ephesians that we're actually ministering to one another as we sing. We are, we're not just praising God, that's part of it. We are ministering to one another. And you know this is true because if you're ever in a crowd of people who's loudly singing praise to God, your own heart is lifted up in joy and excitement, a, a sense of belonging, a sense of, of gratitude for God. And you also know that if you're in a gathering of people who's sitting and twiddling their thumbs and mumbling out the words of a song, that your heart's not lifted at all. Why is that? It's because it's wrong. It's wrong for us to gather as the people of God and say, okay, now we're going to sing just as Scripture tells us to do, and we're going to mumble out a few, a few quiet words. You know what? If that's the way your kids see you praise God, they're going to kind of wonder, how much do you really love Jesus? Whereas if our kids see us praising God like we really mean it, if the people behind us see it, if your neighbor comes into church and sees you praising God they will say, this person really believes this. It's impacted their lives. And this is what we need to do when we leave the doors of this church and go back into our communities, back into our place of work, back into our schools. Let's just keep it really simple. Do you know what you need to do? You need to speak well of God. You need to tell people your testimony. This is what God has done in my life. You're at the lunch table. Bring up the James Webb telescope pictures. Did you guys see those pictures? What do you think of that? Isn't that amazing? I believe God made that. He made these beautiful things. He's so huge. He's so big. We can have those kinds of conversations, and that's how we do this. That's how we fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. May it be so. We get to be the ones. We get to be the ones invited into this monumental and important and wonderful task of making the praise of God known. Let's take him up on it. Let's do it. I'm going to pray and then we'll sing. So, Lord, we do thank you so much for this tremendous passage of Scripture. 
uh, which, Lord, I can do so little justice to. But I just pray that your spirit has been here to lift our gaze from ourselves and our circumstances to just see you high and lifted up, but also to see you humbling yourselves, stooping down to see us and to rescue us. Lord, I pray that we would praise you for this and that as we praise you for this, you would stir our hearts. There's actually people in this same world who still live in city dumps. Some of them have never heard the name of Jesus. Lord, would you stir us as we praise you for being this kind of a God? Would you stir us to say, I want to do something so that those people who live in poverty and who've never heard of Jesus can be part of the throng that praises his name. So Lord, as we follow you, let's be, would you help us to be those who praise you? Would you help us to be those who are like you? We can't be high and lifted up, but Lord, we can be low. We can go, we can serve, we can make you known. So would you help us to do this for your great glory? Amen.